Timothy, he said, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so, Father, right now we do. We just pray for uh, as the election has come forth and we do, um, Lord, look at our nation and and, um, we do have concerns and and there are great challenges ahead. But Lord, we pray for our president-elect and for his family. We pray that his heart would be opened up to you, Lord, that his heart would be opened up to godly wisdom, that somehow the leaders that are in uh, Washington and the leaders of this nation, and Lord, just as the leaders of our state and in our community, that they too would be opened up to to godliness and, and righteousness, that you would place those around them somehow, just as Nebuchadnezzar, what was placed in his courtyard was Daniel, who was a man of excellent spirit, Pharaoh, as we see in Genesis, Joseph was there, uh, giving him godly wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work and we lift our nation up to you and the great challenges that are ahead. And, Lord, that we would be ones that would continue to look for you and, Lord, to you in everything and putting our faith and trust in you. And so, Lord, may we be salt and may we be light um, in our communities and in this nation. May the Christians continue to do that. We pray for um, all these things that are concerned for us. And, Lord, that there would be a turning to what is right and what is acceptable in your sight, Lord. We pray that there would be a true revival in this nation, that people would turn to you and we would realize that, Lord, how we need you so much. And, Lord, how we as a nation need you um, to lead us and to guide us. So, Father, we also ask that tonight as we open up your word, that you would just encourage us and bless us, that you would open our ears to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. As we are in Leviticus chapter 11, in that section of chapter 11 through 15, what we're going to see is the law that's going to be given concerning, first of all, chapter 11 as we go through it tonight, dietary laws. Then we're going to see uh, other matters that concern hygiene, um, skin disease, what um, chapter 15 is going to discuss, bodily discharge and things like that. Now, as we get into the dietary laws and we get into, you know, disposing of carcasses and all of that, and you're maybe thinking here tonight, oh man, I could have stayed at home and watched something a little bit more interesting on TV. Leviticus chapter 11, what does that have to do with me today? We can make application. Now, there's a couple things that as we look at this, we obviously are going to see there's practical reasons why the Lord gave the dietary laws and all the other laws concerning, you know, cleanliness and and all these other things is because today we know that we have, you know, ways of being able to cook food in a way that is proper and thoroughly. We also know a lot about uh, some of the things that can happen or foods that can be bad for us. We have a lot more knowledge. We also know some of the, the sicknesses and diseases that can be spread, for instance, through bodily fluids or, or you know, um, discharge. We know it can be spread through blood and, and semen and all these other things. That's why when you see paramedics that go out to a scene, 
uh, car accident or treat somebody or police officers as well if there's been, you know, uh, uh, fighting or beating or cutting or something. If there's any chance that they may come in contact with blood, they wear the gloves, don't they? Because they know that, that there is that transmission of sicknesses and disease that can come in those kinds of ways. Sexually transmitted diseases, you know, through bodily fluids and things like that. And so back in the ancient time, they didn't have all the knowledge that you and I have. So God here, he gives them these laws for very much uh, practical reasons. There were certain, you know, for example, pork, that if it isn't cooked all the way through, that, of course, there can be some consequences and bring sickness to individuals. As they were dealing with dead carcasses and things like this, they had to be very careful. And actually, as we're going to discuss and go through this, we're going to see that throughout the millenniums that the Jewish communities Uh, pretty much as they would follow these dietary laws and other laws that are going to be given to us, also concerning leprosy, that was a skin disease that was highly contagious, that they would isolate those individuals, that they oftentimes would be not experiencing the the sicknesses and, and plagues and things like that, that would hamper the other nations because they didn't have uh, the laws that the, the Jewish community had. So there were very practical reasons that we can look at these things and see why these things were put in place. But also there is a spiritual application as well. And as we go through this, of course, just even in the dietary laws, that we're going to see that the Lord desires for us not to take anything in our souls and in our hearts taking it in spiritual food that's going to defile us. And there are a lot of things out there that will defile us, that will bring corruption, sickness to our souls and to our faith if we're not careful. And so we can make some application here tonight. But as we look at chapter 11, let's begin to read as we see, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cub, that you may eat. And so like, you know, a cow, they would eat beef and and had their cows and and, uh, that's something that would be acceptable. Verse 4, Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. The rocks, hyrax, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The hare, that's a rabbit, of course, uh, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, it is unclean to you. And the swine, or that is pigs, though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean to you. And so here, uh, the restrictions are given, and the, and the guidelines given. If the animal had a divided hoof, not a single hoof, such as a horse or or a donkey, and it chewed its cud, then it was clean. It could be eaten. Again, as I mentioned to you, cattle was something that they could eat. Uh, also, um, sheep was something uh, that they could eat. Uh, lamb. And uh, so, a divided hoof, they couldn't eat. A camel was considered to be unclean. Looking at a camel, I don't know why anybody would even want to eat a camel. So, um, Camels are just, you know, if you've been in the Middle East or seen camels, and, and once in a while you'll run into a camel around here, they just, uh, they just look scraggly, and they just, you've got to be careful because they'll spit on you and, and all of this. So the camel is unclean. Uh, pigs, of course, 
we know that they are unclean and Jews today will not eat pork and, uh, and, and don't, um, don't, you won't go to Israel and you won't see uh, those who are raising pigs of the Jewish culture. Um, one of the things that we saw in Matthew's Gospel, you remember that Jesus at one point went over to the area of the Gadarenes and there he met two men that were demon-possessed with lots of demons. And you recall that he would cast the demons out. They would go into a herd of swine and then run down the hill and into the Sea of Galilee and they would drown. And in that, uh, that village that uh, the people had all those pigs, it was unlawful for them to do that. Um, they probably, as scholars believe, that they were raising those pigs because the people, the capitalists, would want them and so it would generate money uh, for them. But it was unlawful for them to eat pork. And of course, today, if you go to Israel and if you stay um, in Israel and you stay particularly in the kibbutzes uh, that are run by the Jews, uh, you're not going to get bacon in the morning. You're not going to get sausage and you're not going to have ham or any of those things because uh, pork is forbidden of them. Now, as we go through this chapter here and we look at these dietary laws, one of the things that we need to understand is, is that you and I as Christians, as we come to the New Testament, all things have been declared clean to us. And the New Testament is very, very clear about that. We know as you read Romans chapter 14 that Paul begins to talk about that he says, I am convinced by the Lord Jesus Christ that all things are clean. And he says the kingdom of God is not about food or drink, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He would say that I am convinced and I know and he declares that all food is to be clean. And so we also know that it would be in Colossians chapter 2 that Paul would write to that church that don't let anyone judge you concerning foods or festivals or Sabbaths or new moons, which were just a shadow of things that come. Jesus Christ being the substance or that is the reality. And so things are declared clean for you and I as Christians. Now, in Romans chapter 14, we do see that Paul talks about sensitivity, doesn't he? to that one, to that brother who perhaps doesn't, you know, uh, have the faith and, um, you know, won't eat meat. He says, you be sensitive to them in your liberty. You have liberty to be able to eat that meat, but don't stumble the weaker brother or sister. So that's a lot of what that chapter is about. And, um, and so he discusses that. You don't want to, to make their faith falter or stumble them in their faith or destroy their faith in any sort. By, by flaunting your liberty around them. And so even though it's been declared clean, there are those perhaps who will have certain convictions of food that they won't eat. But we cannot say that you cannot eat pork because it's forbidden of the Lord. It is declared clean as we go to the New Testament. And again, I want to remind you as well that in Acts chapter 15, that's a very important chapter for you and I to remember. When somebody comes along and says, you have to observe the Sabbath day, you have to observe the festivals, you have to observe you know, the dietary laws, remember that it was the Jerusalem Council that met. And as the church in the gospel was spreading throughout uh, the areas where the Gentiles were receiving it, Paul making that first missionary journey up to the churches of Galatia, you recall that the whole you know, uh, thing about circumcision, which we're going to talk about even tonight as we move into chapter 12, you know, the Judaizers coming in behind the ministry of Paul saying, well, that's all fine and dandy that you Gentile believers have faith in Jesus Christ. 
Christ, but there's more to it. You have to be circumcised if you want to consider yourself truly to be saved. And also, it wasn't just circumcision, but also they were encouraging them that they needed to keep the law of Moses. When the Jerusalem Council would meet, it would be Paul and Barnabas and the boys from Antioch. They would cruise up to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James and the leaders that were there. There was also in Acts chapter 15, as you look at it very carefully, that there was a sect of the Pharisees that, that believed in Jesus. And it's kind of interesting. Keep that in mind as we go through Matthew's gospel, because the main enemies of Jesus right now are who? in the gospel accounts, is the Pharisees. They are the ones that are going to come, as we're going to see, it's really going to pick up here as we move into chapter 19, those religious leaders of the Pharisees that are coming to trap Jesus, try to test him, trick him with questions, trying to get the people to turn against him. But it would be after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that some of the Pharisees became believers. And so that sect of the Pharisees, they were saying, yes, we say that you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if they want to be saved. So what was happening in the early church, that Christianity was actually what could have happened uh, if they didn't get this settled and, and they weren't seeking the Lord in his direction and the truth of, of the Lord, that Christianity could have become another sect of Judaism. Just like today where we have different denominations, well, Judaism could have had another sect called Christianity where you're a Christian, but before you know, you're really a Christian, you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So those group of the Pharisees were saying, yes, those Gentile Christians need to be circumcised and have to keep the law of Moses. And of course, you saw that Peter, as you read that chapter, would stand up and he would address uh, the assembly that was there and the leaders. And he would say... You know, God has used me to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, of course, as he would bring the gospel to Cornelius there in Acts chapter 10. As the gospel was given to that Roman centurion and his family, he had eaten with them and they got saved. The Holy Spirit came upon them and and it was evident. Peter goes to Jerusalem and the people were astonished. You ate with Gentiles? I mean, how could you do that? And Peter told them what happened. And so they were astonished that God was extending his grace and his love and salvation to the Gentiles. And, of course, the Old Testament prophets had spoken about how it would be that the Gentiles would come into the faith. So that's what James begins to quote as he stands up. They, Peter would say, why would we want to put the, this yoke on the the neck of the believers. In other words, this yoke of legalism that even our fathers couldn't keep. James stands up. He confirms what Peter has said. Quotes from the Old Testament. Says that God has told us that the light would go to the Gentiles. That they would be brought into this thing. That Paul would painstakingly write about in the New Testament called the church. It would consist of both Jews and Gentiles. And to this one you know, living thing called the church, the new man, as he would call it in the New Testament. It's neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free or male or female any longer. We're all one in Christ right now. And so that's what they were discussing. And it would be James that would then, as he would write a letter to those Gentile believers, and he says that it pleases us and we are in agreement with the Holy Spirit. In other words, they weren't out of their bounds. They were in agreement with God in this that you guys should abstain from meat offered to idols for the sake of sensitivity 
and you should, you know, stay away from blood, meat strangled, and uh, that's roadkill, uh, what I call it. Um, but and then stay away from sexual immorality because the Gentiles had a real problem coming out of paganism with, uh, you know, sexual immorality. And if you do these things, you do well. Nothing about keeping the Sabbath. Nothing about keeping the dietary laws. Nothing about having to be circumcised. So that's the thing that we need to remember, and it was settled at that point. Now, that as we discussed going through Exodus, the law of the Sabbath, that there are those who have a conviction to keep the Sabbath. You know, one man esteems one day above another. Paul would write in Romans chapter 14, one man esteems every day alike. You be convinced in your own mind. And so if you have that conviction, if you have convictions about certain dietary laws or whatever it might be, then God bless you. But we cannot say that you cannot eat that pork or you cannot eat that cheeseburger because God, you know, forbids it. We are free to be able to do that. We need to be careful in our sensitivity is what Paul writes, but all things have been declared clean. Matter of fact, let me read to you from First Peter or First Timothy, that is, uh, chapter 4. As Paul would say, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so on Thanksgiving, when you have your ham, if that's what you enjoy, receive it with thanksgiving, and, uh, and you are free to be able to do that. Others, perhaps, have that conviction that they won't be able uh, to do that and be able to take it in faith, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 14. So I want us to have a good understanding and um, it, of, of what we, we have the liberty and the freedom, things have been declared for us to eat, but also the sake of sensitivity that Paul wrote about. So we see here the things that they were not to eat. Uh, we continue on as we talk about uh, that which is in the water. Verse 9, And these you may eat of all that um, that are in the water, whatever the water has fins and scales, uh, whether in the seas or in the rivers that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water, any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. So any fish that has fins and scales was kosher. They could eat it. And of course, the big diet, a big part of their diet, as we know, would be fish in Israel that would come from the Sea of Galilee. And uh, those guys, many of those disciples, were fishermen, and they would eat that fish. Now, with fins and scales. Now, a couple things here. Selfish was considered to be unclean. So, you know, clams, oysters, lobsters, those things that didn't have fins or scales, they did not eat those things. And, and one of the things that, as you look at the history of the Jews, they were never really ones who were sea, you know, uh, bearing uh, kind of individuals. They um, really didn't like the ocean uh, all that much. They didn't spend a lot of time on ships and like the Phoenicians or other, you know, cultures that did that built ships and the trades and all that that went on. We do know that it was during the time of Solomon that he built some ships that would go to 
the Far East to get some exotic animals that brought back in all his riches and glory, some monkeys and, and things like that. We also know during the time of Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament, it mentions that he tried to build some ships, but it ended up being a disaster. It didn't work out. So the Jews really weren't sea-bearing you know, uh, kind of individuals that spent a lot of time on the ocean. And I think one of the maybe the reasons, because they didn't you know, really fish for lobsters or oysters or things like that because they didn't eat those things. So their fishing was pretty much limited to what was there in the Sea of Galilee during the time that they were in uh, the land, occupying the land. Um, they uh, would not eat catfish. Um, is something that um, is not kosher, uh, I believe, with the Jews. Because, um, you know, one of the things um, is, is that catfish really don't have scales. And if I grew up in Kansas, so um, anyway, as I grew up in Kansas, uh, we used to catch catfish. And, and, and a lot of us like catfish. It's a good eating fish. But I remember when we cleaned it, uh, that we'd peel the skin off that catfish. And so I remember being in Israel uh, as the Jordan River flows out of the Sea of Galilee that um, there's where the baptism is and it's kind of channeled there and it's slow flowing at that point. And um, there's different fishes that are in there, little fishes that come out of the Sea of Galilee, little little fishes that, that come around and swim around. And as you go out there in the baptism, they'll come and nibble on your leg and stuff, those little fishes and stuff. But also, there's some big catfish that are there that are swimming around. And I used to think, why aren't the you know, Jewish boys from the neighboring village, you know, Tiberias, why aren't they over there on the banks, you know, trying to catch the catfish? Because that would have been me when I was a kid. I'd pedal my bike just like, you know, me and my friends. You know, early in the morning, we'd go fishing at a pond. And uh, that was something that we regularly do. And I would think, boy, I'd be there trying to catch these catfish. Well, somebody told me because it wasn't kosher. And so you got these big catfish that are swimming around there in the Jordan River. And you're going to, you know, throw them a pretzel and they'll come up and nibble on it and stuff and it's kind of fun to watch them the catfish would be something that they would not uh you know eat uh in it's not kosher um one of the things too with the fish is that um in jerusalem in the days of jesus there are different gates that they had and those gates had different names indicating where those gates would lead to they had for example the gate that jesus would walk out of that uh on his way to calvary and outside that city gates, and we know from Hebrews that he was crucified outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, that it is believed that he would be crucified right outside the Damascus Gate. The Damascus Gate would go by that place called Calvary. It was a major road. We know that Jesus was crucified by a major road. But that was the road that would lead to Damascus. That's why they called it the Damascus Gate there on the north side. And that's where Mount Moriah was. And so it was a major road and people would come by and they would see that place of execution. And they would see, of course, those who would walk by that day, uh, Jesus up on that hill. So Damascus Gate. There was the eastern gate that you could go out and go up to the Mount of Olives. There was other gates. But on the northeast side of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, there was called the Fish Gate. And that's where they would bring fish in from the Sea of Galilee. And so you remember that in the trial of Jesus, 
that it's recorded in the gospel that John the disciple was there at the trial because he was the one that the high priest knew. So he kind of had an in and had access to go in and he saw the trial before the religious leaders. And the reason that John knew the high priest, they believe, historians and scholars, is because James and John, of course, as we saw, they were called, they were fishermen, the sons of Zebedee. It is believed that Zebedee had quite a fish business that was going on, that he would bring fresh fish from the Sea of Galilee through the fish gates, and then they would sell it there in the marketplace, and, and people would, would um, come. And, and so Zebedee was well known uh, in Zebedee's fish stand. There are some that will say, we'll show you where tradition says that his fish stand was. But also he would bring fresh fish to the high priest and to the religious leaders. So that's why they believe that John was able to come into and see the trial of Jesus as he stood before the religious leaders. So the fish gate there. So fish was very much an important part of their diet as well. As we read in verse 13, And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite and the falcon after his kind, every raven after his kind, the ostrich, uh, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after his kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork and heron after his kind, and the hope po and the bat. And, all, and so these are the um, 20 birds that are listed not to eat. And uh, so, you know, ravens and, and hawks and, and ostriches. Um, kind of interesting that the ostrich is, is mentioned here. Uh, when they went into the, to the land, was there ostriches that were there? Um, I don't know. But uh, nothing said about uh, you guys who hunt geese or ducks. You guys are okay. Turkey for Thanksgiving. We're, we're doing good. We're okay. All right. Verse 20. Offline insects that creep on all four shall be an abomination to you. Yet these you may eat of every flying insect that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet which, uh, with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grasshopper after its kind. But all other flying insects which have four feet shall be abomination to you. So creeping insects which unkosher, such as, for example, the ant. Uh, you didn't eat ants. Some parts of the world where I went to in Thailand once, uh, ants were something that was part of their diet. So they would dip it in honey or in chocolate, and they would eat ants. Um, I leave the ants for the trout up in the mountains, uh, in the streams. And, and guys, a little tip for you who fly fish. Black ant, late July, August, excellent uh, to put on and for those trout. They love it. It's, it's Leviticus 11. You've got to cut me a little slack here. So black ant is a good thing to use, but we'll leave it for the trout. But one of the things that they, they could, flying insects, join it, uh, legs jointed above the, the feet, could be eaten. And that was locusts, and that was grasshoppers, and that was the cricket. Now, who do you think of when, when you read that? John the Baptist, isn't it? John the Baptist out there in the desert eating locusts, eating grasshoppers. He dipped it in honey. And uh, it was a food, actually, for those who were very, very poor, which I think indicates to me that John the Baptist out there in the Judean wilderness wearing camel skin, uh, which wasn't the most desirable thing to wear, um, and then eating that dietary to insects. That was part of their diet, and they would eat that, indicating that they were very poor. And so here, uh, the insects that they could eat and not eat 
those uh, things that were kosher and unkosher. And then in verse 24, by these you shall become um, unclean. Uh, whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean till evening. Whoever carries part of the carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any animal which divides the foot but is not cloven hoofed uh, or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. In verse 27, And whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, those that are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. So the disposal of carcasses of, of animals was very, very much uh, here regulated and given to them. And one of the things about whether unclean animals or clean animals and how they were told that they were to be disposed of the carcasses and then what would happen to the individuals who would dispose of them, um, they, uh, again, had very practical reasons um, that they received from the Lord for doing this. Um, Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. In other words... Unclean animals, when dead, they they couldn't just be left in the community to rot. They had to be disposed of. But the people who disposed of the unclean animals had a a remedy of uncleanness by washing. uh, And and then there was actually a brief quarantine. They had to be considered unclean until evening. Now, this did a couple important things. If there was a dead rat that was found in an Israeli village... It would be carefully, according to the guidance that we read here, and properly disposed of. And the one disposing of it would have a, a, a short time of being quarantined and also had to go through the washing ritual that is described here. Now, what that did is it helped prevent diseases from spreading in a very significant way. And we know that as in 1350, what happened in Europe? There was the Black Plague, wasn't there? Buponic Plague that happened. And it was the source of it was coming from rats. And so in that terrible plague that would spread throughout Europe, almost a quarter, a third uh, of the population ended up dying because of that plague. But what happened was they found out, and, and, and they, they, they know from history, that a lot of the Jewish villages and communities didn't have uh, nearly the death rate that the rest of the population in, in Europe had because of these practices that they went through. They disposed of the animals very carefully, and then they would wash and, and all these things. So, um, unfortunately, what ended up happening is, is that um, because they were largely preserved, the Jewish communities, and were affected by that plague, is that they were often accused and, and um, looked at as, as being ones that were the masterminds behind the plague. And it would even uh, raise up and, and increase the anti-Semitism that would come to them. So it was unfortunate what happened, uh, but it was because of these dietary laws that happened. And again, that the Lord is saying, and he's going to say that you guys are my people and the other nations are going to be able to see that, that, that I take care of you 
you and that um, that you are blessed. And part of it is because they followed what the Lord had told them to do. So very practical reasons. But also, I want us to understand something that that as whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes, be unclean until evening. When we read this, this shows that the ceremonial uh, uncleanness was not the same as being in a state of sin. You know, you came to the feast, you touched the tomb, you were considered unclean, whatever. And so oftentimes we read this and we think, ah, it's sinful to, 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 to touch a, you know, a carcass or dispose of it. There wasn't required notice here that, that there be, um, you know, a sin offering that was to be offered because of that. You were in a state of uncleanness. So it was a state of ceremonial impurity that needed to be addressed. And so it wasn't the same as being in a state of sin that happened. And so we need to understand that as we go through this. And so as we continue in verse 29, these also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, and the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, and the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, and the sand lizard, and the chameleon. And so more unclean animals, reptiles, uh, you know, some places of the world, some um, cultures, reptiles are a big thing and, a, you know, and something that they eat. Ugh, I don't know about that. So, verse 31, these are unclean to you among all that creep. Uh, uh, whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. And anything on which any of them uh, falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack. Whatever item it is in, which any work is done, it must be put in water, and it shall be unclean until evening, then it shall be clean. Any earthen vessel into which any of them falls, you shall break, and whatever it is in it shall be unclean. And such a vessel, any edible food upon which water falls, becomes unclean, and any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. And everything on which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean, whether it is an oven or cooking stove, it shall be broken down, for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or cistern in which there is plenty of water shall be clean, but whatever touches any such carcass becomes unclean. Verse 37, And if a part of any such carcass falls on any planting seed, which is to be sown, it remains clean. But if water is put to the seed, and if a part of any such carcass falls on it, it becomes unclean to you. So here we see all this is given, the transmission of uncleanness from unclean animals. Um, again, it was a very important part of hygienic you know, standpoint here. If a dead animal fell into the water, the water was considered unclean. And, of course, we know today that, of course, that can be a problem and pollute the water if, if a dead carcass is found in that. If, you know, an animal is found in an earthen vessel um, that you carry water in or carry wine in, uh, you were to break the earthen vessel, if it's in a cooking stove or it's, you know, in a bowl that you're going to eat out of, that had to be cleaned. And, of course, you know, again, rats going through the bowls or something like that, that would increase the spread of the plague that happened in Europe. But here they didn't experience it because they had very specific guidelines given to them that they were to clean that if they saw any, any um, droppings or anything like that. And this is the time of year where even in this part of the country we have to be careful of mice, don't we? 
Um, it's getting cold outside, and the mice like to come inside where it's a little bit warmer. And so, you know, it, there's nothing more disturbing than see, you know, mouse droppings, you know, in the kitchen or something like that. Once what happened um, is um, I was letting the dog out very early in the morning, and uh, I turned over to the toaster, and all of a sudden this mouse came out of the toaster <laughs> at our house. Yeah, so we got a new toaster, you know. <laughs> he was in there eating the breadcrumbs or something. It's like, oh, man. So this is kind of what it's talking about here, these, these chapters here, you know, concerning seed or, you know, water or, your, you know, cooking stoves or anything like that. You want to try to keep clean. And obviously we know that to be true, don't we? In verse 41... I think that's where we're at. Verse, verse 39, actually. If any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches the carcass shall be unclean until evening. And he who eats of his carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. He also who carries his carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. And whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for there are, uh, they are an abomination. And then verse 43, You shall not make yourselves an abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. And so again, um, those things that are considered unclean, uh, carcasses of clean animal, the handling of carcasses needs to be done properly and uh, be done so they uh, could consider themselves to be clean once properly uh, done according to the ordinance that was given to them. And then as we finish the chapter, verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creepy things that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And this is the law of the animals and of the birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between unclean and the clean, between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So the purpose of the dietary laws, again, God cared about every area of their lives, just like he cares about every area of our lives. And one purpose of the dietary laws was to set them apart from the other nations. They didn't go through the problems that the other nations did because uh, they would have problems with you know, diseases and sicknesses and things like that uh, because they didn't have that knowledge and, and that you know, uh, guidelines that was given to them. And it was to be a, a, a witness to the other nations as well. One of the things is we make spiritual application here tonight. You recall that last week in chapter 10 that it was told to, to Aaron and his two sons, when you go into the tabernacle, make sure that you don't have intoxicated drink that you've been taken of, that you may distinguish what is uh, holy and unholy, clean and unclean. And the thing for you and for me, when we take in spiritual food, Make sure that you're not taking in anything that is unclean. Make sure that you're not taking in anything that's going to defile you. And that's what we need to remember. Because there is a lot of stuff out there. 
There's a lot of stuff out there that may look good. It sounds good. It may seem like it's pleasing, yeah, but it's going to defile us. And one of the things that I think about as I read this chapter is I think about Daniel chapter 1. You recall that Daniel was taken off as a young man. He was probably just a teenager off to Babylon. And there he was being uh, trained to, to work in the affairs of the Babylonian government. I mean, that would be a scary thing, wouldn't it? I look at all these kids that are back here, you know, in the back that are coming on Wednesday night. So many of them. And, it, and it's a wonderful thing. And, and can you imagine, you know, somebody that age being taken away from mom and dad and taken back to Babylon and, and being told that, listen, you're going to eat the king's meat and his wine. And it was Daniel and his friends that said no. It took a lot of guts and courage for him to say that. Because Daniel very easily could have said, you know, you know the same, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. But he had determined in his heart that he would not defile himself and he wasn't going to eat of the king's meat. You know, hey, you talking pork roast? Uh-uh. I'm not going to take of the wine. And so they would eat of what was permitted to them to eat, of the diet and the vegetables that they would eat, and God blessed them for that. The key for you and for me to not be taking in that which will defile, that will pollute, that which can be unclean, is you determine in your heart beforehand, before the test comes, that I'm not going to take in that thing. And I'm not going to take in of those, those things that are deceptive and those things that are unclean and those things that are pollute and defile me. But as Daniel took that stand, that you and I take that stand as well. Because there's so much out there that can pollute us and come and, and defile us and, and cause corruption within us and sickness within us spiritually. And we need to be careful. Remember that it was Jesus that said it isn't what goes into the man physically that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth that defiles him. And he was speaking of the abundance of the heart. So the things that we take into our hearts and into our souls, those things can cause problems. And especially in the day in which we're living in, because access to pornography and access to that uh, which is filth, access to, to seeing those things uh, which will just cause problems to you and to me, so much information out there, there's so much deception that is out there, false voices that are out there, that we need to be careful. And we want to be ones that we continue to feed upon God's Word. And that we continue to take it in and we determine within ourselves that, Lord, I'm not going to set my eyes and I'm not going to open my ears and I'm not going to set my mind to those things. But, Lord, what is pleasing to You and then allow the Lord to grow you and strengthen you and to bless you. And so as we move into chapter 12, chapter 12 very quickly, the ritual after childbirth, again, this was a practical reasons to be able to give the new mother time to recover. And, um, and we see in chapter 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days as in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh um, of his foreskin shall be circumcised and she shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing nor come to the sanctuary until the days of her purification 
are fulfilled. So when a male child is born, um, they were again for seven days unclean. Um, and then on the eighth day, the male child would be circumcised. Now, uh, a couple of things. And then again, it would continue for 33 days. Um, and that would give time for mom to be able to rest and to be able to be recovered. And, um, and so it was for the benefit of the mother. The child being circumcised on the eighth day again, this law is given here, but we saw that it was given clear back where? In Genesis chapter 17, wasn't it? He told Abraham, this is a sign of the covenant that your male children shall be circumcised on the eighth day. And so we can look at the you know, medical reasons and stuff why the eighth day was a great day you know, and an important day uh, when the blood, you know, the foreskin was cut off, that the blood was able to congeal at that time. And, um, and so God knew what he was doing and having it done on the eighth day. But again, it became a topic of, of great controversy in the early church. And there are those who were coming to the Gentiles saying that you must be circumcised. Now you remember that when Paul started his second missionary journey that he met a young man whose name was Timothy. And Timothy was Jewish. And it was Paul that had Timothy circumcised. And then when it came to the heated debate about circumcision, there were those who were suggesting that Titus, another young protege of Paul, be circumcised who was Greek. And Paul said, you're not going to touch now, why would Paul have Timothy circumcised and why didn't he have Titus not circumcised? Was it because Paul was compromising with Timothy? Was it because he hadn't settled it in his heart with Timothy? The reason that he had Timothy circumcised, again, his mother was Jewish. So he was, he was Jewish, Timothy, and he saw promise in Timothy. He saw that this was a young man that God's hand is on him. So Timothy, join us on our missionary journeys. And for the sake, again, of sensitivity, when we go into the synagogues, because you see on the missionary journeys that what was the first place that Paul, or where was the first place he would go? It was the synagogues, wasn't it? He would go into the synagogues and he would reason with them from the scriptures that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning Messiah. So Timothy, you being Jewish, go ahead and get circumcised so you are able to minister and again for the sake of sensitivity to the Jews as we go into the synagogues. But if you go in there and they know you're Jewish and, 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 and they you know, know that you're not circumcised, and please don't ask me how they would know or not know. I, you know... <laughs> Don't go there, okay? But for the sake of sensitivity, you be circumcised so you can minister to them. Titus, he's Greek. So he doesn't have to worry about it. And we're not going to make that case because if I haven't circumcised, then it is a compromise. So this whole law of circumcision, and it was an, an outward mark that is the cutting away the flesh that would show that there was an inward identification that they belonged to God. And what happened was it became a way of where they thought, well, you know what, we're descendants of Abraham, we've got circumcised, and that's automatic ticking into heaven. And of course, it would be Paul that comes along and he says, listen, Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision. He believed God, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The law of circumcision didn't come till chapter 17. So he makes that point in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. And 
And so here again, the law of circumcision given. Um, and in verse 4, she shall then continue. Um, or verse 5, actually, we'll pick it up. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So it's doubled. And when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest the lamb. Of the first year is a burnt offering, a young pigeon, or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door to the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering, the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. One of the reasons why it is thought that she was to bring a sin offering and a burnt offering is what I've read, and if you've got any more insight on this, not because having a child was a sin, they're considered a sin. Of course, it would be the Lord that would say, multiply and fill the earth. It was seen in the ancient Jewish custom and culture that having a child was a tremendous blessing. Inheritance was very much of a blessing. But perhaps the sin offering and the burnt offering, the sin offerings is because that child being born, that there was another sinner that came into the world. Because we're all born with a sin nature. And we are all born, you know, as it would be as David in Psalm 51, you know, talks about being born in sin. In other words, we are born with that sin nature because of Adam. The only one that was born, and this is what interests me, and you can do a little digging on this, is there were two young individuals, a married couple, that brought two turtle doves in Luke chapter 2 for Jesus for an offering, showing that Mary and Joseph were poor, but Jesus never sinned. So, is that answer suffice? I don't know. But, but this, this offering was to be given uh, after the child was born. So, here the sacrifice required and a burnt offering and um, the turtle doves. And then as we will move into chapter 13 next time, we'll look at the law of leprosy, which has a lot, guys, it has a lot of real interesting very important uh, application that we can make because leprosy in the Old Testament speaks of sin. And it speaks of sin, how it spreads. And there's a lot of important lessons in that. So come next week and, and we'll read that. So Father, we